Well, I'm going to come to identity in a minute, but I want to start by telling you, some of you probably know this, others don't, that in the 80s and the 90s and continued on to the 2000s, there was a heretical movement that invaded many an evangelical church in vengeance. It's called the insider movement. What is the insider movement? I always get to the bottom line. I'm not going to give you all the philosophical stuff and the philosophical mumbo-jumbo. The insider movement says that a Buddhist can stay as a Buddhist but just take Jesus along. A Hindu can stay a Hindu, just follow Jesus. A Muslim can keep practicing his religion but take Jesus along the way. No doubt, at least in my mind, that this adulterating of our identity and the identity of what it means to be a Christian in the fullest sense of the word has weakened the Christian identity in the church today, particularly in the West. Now we have all sorts of people who call themselves hyphenated Christians. It's all over the place. I hear it from other evangelical pastors. There are some now calling themselves homosexual Christians or transsexual Christians or uh, deconstructed Christians or universalist Christians, or, and the list goes on and on and on. I want you to read my lips. That is falsehood. That's falsehood. Because a true Christian believer should never, never, never have any identity other than Christian believer. Believer in Jesus, a redeemed child of God who is on His way and her way to heaven. I am a blood-bought, eternally forgiven child of God, period. I cannot have any other identity. I cannot have identity with whatever weakness I may have or whatever temptation that I might be facing. I have no other identity other than this one. I once was, in the past, lost, but now in the present I'm found. Paul lists all the list of sins, and then he said, some of you once were in the past, not now. In fact, just as an aside, I can tell you I don't like to be called a hyphenated American. Sometimes the media does that when they're describing me, but I, I can't stand it. I am not a hyphenated American. The day I became an American citizen, that it became my nationality. I made a choice to accept the responsibilities and the duty of just being an American. It's not that I'm ashamed of my past or my past heritage or any of that at all. Not at all. Not one bit. But now I became an American, therefore I'm only an American. Perhaps there is no greater rebuke and greater correction and greater exhortation regarding that Christian's identity than we would see particularly in the seven letters that Jesus wrote to His churches. 
seven letters in the book of Revelation. These seven churches, with all of their problems and with all of their challenges and with all of their successes and all their failures, they represented all sorts of churches, every church, everywhere in the world, all the time. Five of the seven churches are being rebuked for tolerating sin. <laughs> Go figure. If Jesus is writing in the 21st century Western church, he would have said this falsehood of the so-called insider movement must go and must be repented of. This falsehood of baptizing immorality into the church must be repented of. This acceptance of universalism must be repented of. Why? Because tolerance of sin, any sin, any sin in the church of Jesus Christ stems from the fact that their love for Jesus is waning down and their love for the world is increasing. Bottom line. I get to the bottom line very quickly. This is the bottom line. They can explain it away all they wanted about wanting to be relevant to the culture. They can rationalize it all they want that they don't want to offend people. They can justify it any way they want that they need to be accepted in order to be able to witness to people. Whatever excuses they use, in reality, it all boils down to this. Their love for the world has overcome their love for Jesus. That's the bottom line. You're going to see it again and again and again and again in these seven letters. Think about this with me, please. I plead with you. Just think with me. The Bible makes it very clear that the church is the bride of Christ. If you agree, say amen. amen. Or you have to because it's in the Scripture. <laughs> We're the bride of Christ. And as sometimes the case... A wife, after being married for a few years or many years, it doesn't matter, begins to drift away from her husband. Now, mind you, it happens a lot with husbands more than wives, but I'm going to stick to the biblical illustration, the biblical imagery, okay? She's married, yes. <laughs> She's still living with her husband, yes. She's still going through the motions of marriage, yes, but she's no longer, as we would say, madly in love with her husband as she once was. She is not emotionally engaged and deeply enamored by her husband as she once was. She's more of a roommate with her husband. Now, beloved, please listen to me. This is the condition of many a church in the West in the 21st century. They might have started with great love for Jesus, but after being battered by the attack of Satan, and the emissary of Satan, after being criticized and called names, whether it be Jesus freaks as it was in the 60s or Jesus fanatics or now as bigots and 
prejudiced and narrow-minded and fanatics, and after being battered by all of these false accusations, they begin to defend themselves. Not to take a stand and say, we love you no matter what you call us. <laughs> they want to prove that they're none of these things, none of these false accusations. They want to prove it. So how do they do it? How do they prove that this is a false accusation? They try to accommodate to their critics. They try to accommodate to their critics. And then all of a sudden, slowly, it's very slow, slowly but surely, they find the love for the world has overcome the love for Jesus. Now, don't get me wrong. Don't get me wrong. They still sing the songs. They will pick up certain passages from the Scripture to preach from. That's not going to rebuke sinners. They will twist the Scripture to accommodate to the unconverted. They will make sure never to offend sinners. And they will avoid preaching the pure, unadulterated gospel of Jesus Christ. You see, they want their audience, and you notice I said their audience, not congregation, they want their audience to feel good about themselves in their sin. Oh, they just want to be relevant. I saw one of the big kahuna of them the other day on television. I don't have to preach against sin. People know they're sinners. Really? Meanwhile, their love for Jesus is only words on the screens. Words on, words on paper. They now, they just have become roommates with Jesus. They no longer live the life of longing for Him alone, of pleasing Him alone, of honoring Him alone, and yes, of obeying Him alone. But I want to tell you something else. Don't forget this. This temptation, this temptation has plagued the church since its inception. Since it's, it's just accelerating now that we're coming to the end of time. Throughout the series of messages, I'm calling it Letters from Jesus. We're going to see not only the cause, the cause, but also the cure. Also the cure. The one thing that you will notice again and again and again and again and again is that if a church, any church, any believers, any group of believers want to stay in love with Jesus, then they have to be first and foremost stubbornly, deliberately, unapologetically refusing to accommodate to the pressure of culture. Can I get an amen? They must be stubbornly, deliberately, unapologetically to be a counterculture. Why? Because once you start accommodating to culture, once you start, once you start, or you try to please the culture around you, or want to be accepted by society, 
you'll most certainly not only lose your vision, you lose your power for witnessing. We're going to see this in details as we look at these seven churches in Asia Minor. Why seven? Well, as you know, in the Scripture, seven is the number of perfection, is the number of completeness. And so our Lord chose seven churches to send seven letters to. This is a complete package, as it were. He covered everything that needs to be covered in all the seven churches. And so we are going to see this complete picture of challenges, of sin, of failure, and yes, of success, <laughs> all represented in these seven churches, but you found them everywhere throughout the world, throughout time. But we have to begin with the beginning. Before I get to the seven churches, we have to begin with the beginning, and that's Revelation 1.1. Revelation 1.1, actually we're only going to look at that verse and verse 5 today. That's it, chapter 1. <laughs> the book opens by saying, the revelation of Jesus Christ. The revelation of Jesus Christ. What's revelation means? I'm sure even the young boys and girls in the church would tell you what revelation means. It means exposure. It means unveiling. It means the revealing. <laughs> That's what it means. It means the uncovering. It means showing what is hidden. But because the Greek word for revelation is apocalypsis, came to reveal, talk about apocalyptic. And then we use it, and you hear it even in the secular world, they use it as something ominous, something terrible, apocalyptic. No, no, not at all. In fact, the whole book of Revelation is the unveiling, is the uncovering of the glorified Jesus. You say, well, well we, in the Gospels we saw Jesus the God-man walking in the streets of modern Israel. We saw him as the God-man who chose to lay aside the splendor of his majesty. Never, 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 never lay down his divinity. There are churches in America today that is teaching that when Jesus came to earth, he laid aside his divinity. That's falsehood. That is a heresy. He never laid aside his divinity, for he coexisted with the Father before all worlds. But he laid aside the splendor of his majesty. Why? So that we can relate to him, and so he can relate to us. But now that he is resurrected, ascended, and glorified, that glorified Jesus is needed to be revealed to the world, and hence it's a book of revelation, revealing the glorified Jesus. That's what the book of Revelation is. It is the continuous uncovering of the glorified Jesus and what's going to happen in the future. I'm not going to preach through the book of Revelation. 
I have done that a few years ago, and you can download it from Leading the Way or from the church or whatever. I've, done, I've gone through the whole book. But I'm going to only focus on the seven churches. As I told you, back when I did the book of Revelation, I kind of did cover three or four churches at once. Now I'm going to go through them one by one, take my time with them. I, actually, I made that promise 10 years ago whenever I did the Revelation. And so this is the time. The glorified Jesus begin by revealing Himself, revealing His glory, revealing also what He thinks of His church. His choice of these seven churches in Asia Minor are a representatives of all churches of all times everywhere in the world. These were seven major cities during that time. It would be like if Jesus wants to communicate with the West, of course, we now have media and all kinds of stuff, but if, if, if it is in the old days, uh, uh, He would be sent, sending to cities. You know, if you start in London, you go to New York and Toronto, Sydney, New Delhi, Beijing, and then Cairo. I mean, that's just like it, it, it's going around the world. Sound like my schedule back in my previous life. I used to go around two or three times a year. These seven cities form an irregular circle. I want you to look on the screen. If a diplomat is traveling from Potamos, where John was, and sail from Potamos, and he gets with his diplomatic pouch, if a diplomat is traveling, and with a diplomatic pouch, he would go and make the full circle. Look at the screen, please. Now, I want the camera to go on the screen. People are complaining. Well, they can't see. The cameras don't go on the screen, so they can't see what I'm talking about. So I want you to see that imperfect circle. If I can work this uh, sucker out. Here we go. There you go. There you go. <laughs> I am absolutely non-technical. My colleagues will tell you that. The reason my father saw me with a wheelbarrow one time when I was a boy, and he said, what are you doing with that technical instrument? <laughs> so I gave it all up. So here's Potamus where John was. So he's going to sail, and the first stop is Ephesus. I had the great privilege of being in Ephesus. It's a magnificent city. It's an amazing city. When you, in fact, the stadium where Paul preached is still there, intact, going over to see John's house where Mary stayed with him, it's a great experience. He goes to Ephesus, then up to Smyrna, to Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, Laodicea. By the way, just to be upfront with you, there are a group of Christians, I'm not one of them, who believe that these seven churches are assigned for different times of history. And so their first letter was to the first church, and then a few centuries later, a few centuries later, they come all the way and say, we are now the church of Laodicea. Now, God bless them. The Bible doesn't say that. And if the Bible doesn't say that, I'm not going to say it. <laughs> and I, I just stick to the Word because I'm not that smart. And as a matter of fact, as we begin to go through each of those, Jonathan Youssef will be reading in location the Scripture, the letter from each one of these cities. Uh, obviously not now, this is a few years ago. 
because he's here and he's going to start a new series next uh, Sunday in 9 o'clock service. But we're going to read the Scripture, read that letter from location, from each of these cities. But look at the circle again. Here you go. Up from Ephesus to Smyrna to Pergamum to Thyatira to Sardis to Philadelphia to Laodicea. And that's what we're going to be reading and going through. Why these cities? Well, they were the most populous city at the time. They were the wealthiest cities. They were the most influential cities. They were the most powerful cities in the whole region. But before we can even go to the first letter, which I'll do in the next message, there is something, some things that are very important you need to understand in the background of these letters. Without understanding the background, you really won't get each individual letter and why Jesus said what He said. Because without knowing and understanding what was going on at the time, you miss out on the incredible depth of these letters and these messages that are in these letters. First of all, this was a time in which the church of Jesus Christ all over the Roman Empire was under persecution. Every corner of the Roman Empire, which is the, literally the populated world at the time. How come? Well, between A.D. 81 and 96, remember those years, 81 to 96, there was a miserable, evil, wicked emperor in Rome by the name of Domitian. And he began the second wave of persecuting of Christians. Emperor Domitian's persecution was more systematic, was more organized, was more deliberate than the first wave under Nero. Nero was crazy man, and, and, and the persecution was haphazard, of whom he doesn't like, and it was mostly limited to the city of Rome. When he put dip Christians in tar and let them light his garden at night for his party. Nero's persecution, as I said, was haphazard, but the mission who came after him by a few years, his persecution was empire-wide, circled the entire empire. Nobody was able to escape the persecution. And all of the worshipers of Jesus Christ, the Messiah, were told that they must worship Lord Caesar. Think about this. Think about this. You can only imagine, you can only imagine the Christian believers, how they felt at the time, how they felt. For those who refused to worship Lord Caesar, oh, they were verbally attacked and assaulted. They were insulted by their neighbors, by their nearest and dearest. Others received personal threats for life. Those who owned businesses were boycotted by the populace, and therefore they lost their livelihood. They lost their jobs, and they were literally bankrupt. And not only the cost of livelihood, but some people lost their lives. Can you imagine the panic? Put yourself in their place. 
moms and dads, uh, think about this. Think of the incredible panic and the temptation to compromise. Well, you know, we can do that, worship Caesar one day, but we still worship Jesus. Uh, you know, we don't have to. Just think of the temptation. Imagine the fear of, over their children and their families and how easy for children to be brainwashed and, and in order to avoid pressure, in order to avoid persecution, in order to avoid insult, in order to avoid alienation from their friends. But persecution was only from the outside. It's from without. From within, oh my goodness, from within, they were experiencing false teaching and false preaching and false prophets. In addition to that, immoral people sneaked into the church and they began to influence the church members' sexual behavior. All of this, of course, was the devil's way, the devil's way to destroy the church of Jesus Christ in its infancy. He wanted to destroy it in its infancy. Beloved, listen to me. Please, please, please listen to me. I don't want you to ever forget, don't ever forget that Satan always, always working over time to destroy the church of Jesus Christ and the faithful believers, those who have put their faith in Him alone. We know that He did not succeed then, and we know that He ultimately will not succeed now. Oh, but what chaos He creates! What horror, what devastation He causes! Families today don't talk to each other. And all that Satan needed, one or two non-discerning believers in each church, and voila, compromise, devastation. Let me testify to the glory of Jesus. I only do it to the glory of Jesus, for His grace and for His mercy. For the last 35 years in this church, Church of the Apostles, we have seen Satan raise his ugly head again and again and again. Sometimes he used non-discerning believers. Other times he sneaked in some non-believers into but pretend to be believers. But glory to God, every time the Lord gave us discernment and we were able to stop it dead in its tracks. In the book of Revelation, we see him again and again, and again. I mean, you have to be, you have to be blind not to, not to read that in the Scripture as you read the book of Revelation. He's behind the visible and the invisible conflicts. He's behind the war between the dragon and the lamb. He's behind the conflict between the holy city represented in Jerusalem and the great city represented in Babylon. And, and you see it all over the place, all over the place. And one other thing you need to know, that Satan attacks from multiple directions. 
before you really take, even take a breath, oh, the next one, and then before the next one, and then the next one. His one goal is to get you so flabbergasted that you can't even respond. You don't think I know this? It's not a theory for me. I know it experientially. Sometimes he will attack us through physical persecution. Other times he attacks through governments, through laws, and through the courts. Other times he will attack through false teachers and false preachers. Other times he will attack through compromising Christians. Oh, my beloved friends, in every age, but I think particularly now in these last days, he does this. Because now he's seeing his time of being thrown into the lake of fire is getting closer and closer and closer. He's going madder and madder and madder. He's creating havoc all over the world, all over the world, every culture, every society. There is confusion, confusion, confusion. That is his greatest weapon. He's becoming more furious in his attack on the church of Jesus Christ and trying to inflict, inflict, inflict. See, Satan's strategy never, never, never changed. Did you know that? We're the dumb ones who kind of get blindsided. <laughs> and I'm talking about myself. I'm talking about you. You're too smart for the film. I, I, I am the dumb one. <laughs> you get blindsided. But he only had one strategy, and he plays it over and over and over and over again. Way in the garden. Did God really say that? Today in the church, did, is the Bible really God's Word? Same strategy, over and over and over again. Look what he's doing in the world today. In the West, he's conniving to cooling off the love of many. He gets the believers to love the world and materialism more than they love Jesus. He gets them to fall in love with themselves their own comfort and their own luxury more than their love with Jesus. In other parts of the world, he uses governments to systematically and relentlessly torture and kill believers. In other times, he assaults the minds of the young people and brings doubt in their minds about mom and dad's faith. In other places, he convicts them that love means the acceptance of all sorts of immoral lifestyle, but that's the only way you can really express love. Other times, he would shame the believer into making them think of themselves as unloving, as prejudiced, as bigoted, and uncaring. Question, what is Jesus revealing to his church, to his believers, through John the Revelator, John the Apostle? The one thing is repeated again and again is our Lord Jesus wants his bride 
to be faithful to him alone, no matter what people say. To be faithful to him alone. But he also communicates some very important things. I'm going to look at them right now. Three of them, as a matter of fact. These are not three-point sermon. No, no, no. I have three things I'm going to share with you though. in a minute. But the most important lesson that Jesus wants his bride, the believers, the faithful believers, this age, any age, this particularly this age, is to look to him alone. Not the psychology, not the sociology, not to anthropology, not to being relevant, not to uh, uh, clever techniques and, 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 and marketing abilities and, and, and business principles and, 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 and seeking acceptance uh, and favor of society. No. He wants them to look to him and him alone. I'm not going to say amen if you think this is hard. I know. The only way for the believers in Jesus in these last days, the only way for them not just survive, but to thrive, is to keep their eyes on the exalted, glorified, soon-coming Jesus. Look at verse 5 with me. He spells it clearly why. He wants them to look to him alone. Three things, as I said. They want him, he wants them to look at him as the glorified. It's like the Bible said, we know him after the flesh no more. And that is why you never find a crucifix in this church, because he's no longer on that cross. He rose victoriously on the third day. He wants us to look at the glorified, at the resurrected, ascended, glorified Jesus. And so he introduces not only his past achievements, dying on a cross, shedding his blood to redeem every repentant sinner, but so he doesn't only show this accomplishment, but he also let them know about his triumph, current triumph and future triumph. And so the first thing, it says, look at me because I am the faithful witness. Can you say that with me? Oh, my goodness gracious. What, you didn't have coffee this morning? <laughs> he is the one? Faithful the He is the faithful witness. Do you want to be a faithful witness? Do you want to be a faithful witness? <laughs> Follow the example of Jesus. He never faltered. He never twitched. He never fudged. <laughs> he never evaded. And when all of this took him to the cross, he was still unshaken. The Pharisees tried to shake him up. Pontius Pilate tried to get him to fudge just a little bit. <laughs> the chief disciple, Peter, tried to get him to forget about the cross and the suffering of the cross. He called him Satan. But the Bible said Jesus set his face like a flint. Have you ever seen a flint? I mean, cutting through all the mushy stuff 
he set his face like a flint toward Jerusalem. Because if he didn't do that, you and I would not be here today. We would not be redeemed today. The second thing, he calls himself the firstborn from the dead. When Jesus walked the earth, he raised a number of people from dead. Lazarus being the most known example because he was in the tomb four days. Literally, he was stinking. And he raised him from the dead. But everyone that Jesus raised from the dead died again. Jesus is the only one who rose from the dead never, 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 never to die again. He is alive forever and ever and ever. He is the now the ever-living one. Death is no, has no further demands over him. That's why he's the first fruit. And we too will also be resurrected. Beloved, this should strengthen everyone, should strengthen everyone at the sound of my voice, whether you hear or watching, should strengthen everyone to stand against temptation. To courageously endure suffering and persecution. And the third one, the third reason why our only hope for thriving and victory is keeping our eyes on the resurrected, ascended, glorified Jesus. Verse 5 again, because He is the ruler of the kings of the earth. Can you say that with me? He is the ruler of the kings of the earth. Beloved, listen to me, listen to me. Earthly dictators and rulers might want to crush the church. Egomaniacs want to dominate the church. Government officials may want to persecute the church and weaken the church. But don't ever, 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 ever forget that Jesus is the King of all kings, that He is the ruler of all rulers, that He is the Lord of all lords, that He's the controller of all nations, that He is the presider over the universe, that He's the director of the destiny of people in every nation, that, he is the, that his, his empire is far greater and far bigger than Rome and China and Russia and America and the West and the East and the world put together. His dominion is greater than all of the world. His power is mightier than all of the fleeting life of these despots, that He and He alone is the holder of the title deeds of the universe, that He and He alone has a name that's above every name. me talking. He's talking. He's saying, look to me, because. And he gives us those three reasons in verse 5. Oh, for now, of course, we can't see this with our physical eyes like John the Revelator did. He was privileged to see this with his eyes, physical eyes. We don't. 
we see it only with our spiritual eyes. Our spiritual eyes. Oh, but listen to me. Soon and very soon, we will see the glorified, magnified, majestic Lord Jesus Christ <laughs> with all of His splendor, dominion, authority, power. Come, Lord Jesus. Come, Lord Jesus. Say it with me. Come, Lord, Jesus. Lord Jesus. It is the cry of our hearts that we remain faithful to the very end. Father, as we see people falling like flies right and left every week somewhere, somewhere, somehow, some people defect the faith. Father, we ask You to hold Your remnant so tight in Your hands. You said, those whom the Father has given me, I'll lose none. Father, I pray that You protect Your people, that You guard them from the enemy of their soul. Father, I pray in the name of Jesus that You put a wall around each family represented here, and that You put a hedge of protection, Father, that we will remain faithful, looking up to heaven to see the glorified, the, the resurrected, ascended, glorified Jesus, that we know Him after the flesh no more. For it is in His name that I pray. And all of God's people said, praise the Lord.